0: So this is a conversation with Elliot Higgins, He's the founder and executive director of Bellingcat, an online open-source investigation collective. Bellingcat rose to prominence over its team's investigation of the downing of Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 on July of 2014 by Russian-backed separatists in eastern Ukraine, which killed all 298 passengers on board. The evidence, which linked that group to the Russian Army's 53rd Anti-Aircraft Missile Brigade, was later confirmed by the joint investigation team. So I spoke to Elliot about that case and about some of the many investigations that Bellingcat has done in the past six years. Among the cases that we mentioned are the Latamne and Ruta chemical attacks by the Assad regime in Syria in 2017 and 2013 respectively, ISIS's oil refineries and the environmental and humanitarian catastrophes they've caused, the US bombing of Al Jina Mosque in Aleppo in 2017, the Skripal affair in the UK the Saudi bombings in Yemen, and Europol's hashtag stop child abuse campaigns. One thing I wanted to focus on is how Bellingcat's investigative techniques can be used in both human rights and journalism worlds as well. So while this episode features a lot of concrete examples, we also spoke about how anyone listening to this podcast can take part in these investigations, following well-established and always developing tools and techniques. As usual, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at FireTheseTimes. And if you like what I do, please consider supporting this project with only $1 a month on Patreon on buymeacoffee.com. And you can also do so directly on PayPal if you prefer. Patreon is for monthly, PayPal is for one offs, and buymeacoffee.com has both options. And if you cannot donate, you can still help by reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for your time. <laughs>
1: So I'm Elliot Higgins, I'm the founder of Bellingcat and uh, the executive director.
0: Awesome Elliot, thanks for having this conversation with me. Uh, Many people probably already know what Bellingcat is and does, but would you mind explaining for those who don't? And if you can also give like a bit of story of how did it start?
1: Sure. so um Bellingcat is uh, we've struggled to find a find a good definition but we call it a kind of online open source investigation collective at the moment mm. um so that basically means we do investigations using material that's found um online um there could be anything you know a combination of social media posts satellite imagery online databases and kind of anything we can find basically that's online um And it really started in 2014 when I launched this website after I'd been uh, blogging for a couple of years on my blog, uh, the Brown Moses blog, um, and doing a lot of kind of open source investigation there that over the years built up a kind of following and then the whole kind of um, community of online open source investigation grew alongside of that. Um, And by 2014, I wanted to launch a new site which would bring together people are already kind of doing this online open source investigation themselves and also provide guides and case studies. And that's when I um, launched Balancat. Um And that was in July 2014. And very rapidly, um, while previously my focus had been Syria, um, the shooting down of MH17 in eastern Ukraine was the, our kind of first big investigation as a group.
0: And that also happened in July 2014.
1: Yeah, it happened about three days after um, Balancat was launched, wow. which uh, has generated a few conspiracy theories.
0: <laughs> Uh, so like I, i mainly hover around the human rights and journalism worlds. And in the past few years, I've seen, um, like media outlets and human rights groups, uh, basically learning or teaching themselves and teaching others at the same time to use similar tools and techniques that Bellingcat do. Um, how have you found this intersection uh, kind of develop in the past few years now?
1: It's certainly something that's kind of been accelerating, I would say, in the last probably three years, I would say. But, um, you know, very early on when I started doing this, it wasn't really, um, you know, as a field of investigation... It, it, it didn't really exist in a way. I mean, there'd been always open source investigation or open source intelligence is probably where it's most used, but you know, people always use sources, journalists use sources that are out in the public. But the real change was the online component because what happened with the launch of, you know, smartphones like the iPhone in, you know, 2007, 2008, um, we started seeing apps being developed that allow people to share stuff very quickly. Lots of material like videos and photographs, um, social media platforms being developed. So Basically, more and more ways for people to share information about the lives they're leading and information around them and events that's happening around them. In parallel with that, you also saw platforms like Google Earth, um, you know, providing satellite imagery to everyone, Google Street View giving reference imagery, uh, Panoramio, uh, Flickr, other ways to find kind of reference imagery of these locations. And those kind of two developed in parallel. And that really led us up to, I think, the events of the Arab Spring when this kind of open source material started becoming a way to understand what was happening in these countries without actually being there but that's something that developed you know from about 2012 onwards well when people like me and the kind of there's this kind of small community of people who kind of got into this kind of open source investigation using this online material um kind of developed and these were the kind of the first people to adopt it and they came from organizations like amnesty human rights Watch uh, story was also very heavily involved early on uh, and you know, of course, myself. And then as kind of, I I think the work using this material was shown to actually be solid and interesting, and especially with MH17, which was the first real example of a kind of bellingcat open source investigation having a criminal investigation that basically confirmed its findings Um, that i think really brought that to attention to a lot more people uh, in the justice and accountability community so over the past few years i've been involved you know working with groups like the international criminal courts technology advisory board to discuss how online open source material and evidence can be used in their court, for example. Um, there's been interest from, for example, the Triple I M on Syria that's been set up um, by the UN General Assembly. Mm. They recognize that this open source material will be a big part of their work and analyzing that material will also be, be a big part of their work. Um, so, you know, and more and more we're seeing, you know, the real big hitters in the kind of justice and accountability community taking notice of this and recognizing it as being valuable. On the and alongside that, you also have the um, organisations like the BBC um, setting up the Africa Eye team, who used a lot of open source investigation and won a, a lot of awards for that. Um, also, the New York team, um, New York Times team, that's been set up, doing a lot of really great work, and you know now partly winning the Pulitzer Prize with the New York Times. So. Within the kind of very big mainstream media as well, you're also seeing this recognition that doing open source investigation, uh, you know, in the kind of Bellingcat way, I guess you could say, is extremely valuable and, you know, worthwhile to do that.
0: Mm. Just to backtrack a bit, we, I mean, we mentioned MH17 and probably most people already know, but can you give some context of what happened there and what did, uh, like, what was Bellingcat's role in exposing what actually happened?
1: So um, with MH Seventeen, a, a commercial airliner was shot down over eastern Ukraine on July Seventeenth, Two Thousand and Fourteen. It killed all two hundred and ninety-eight people on board, and pretty soon, um, people were blaming Russia for it or brushing back separatists at least for shooting it down. Um, Russia pushed back, saying, "No, there was you know they had evidence that showed it was you know seems to be the Ukrainians who did it." So I, I think it for um, kind of the online open source investigation community. Anyone who whenever you have a story with two sides saying very different things looking at the open source material is really interesting because it starts clearing up who's actually telling the truth um and that becomes uh, that was kind of what we did with um bellingcat so the first thing we did is we um looked at these photographs of a book missile launcher that had been photographed supposedly on the day traveling through eastern ukraine and we found out where they were um fit uh, taken using a process we call geolocation. We found the approximate time they were taken and we could show this um, missile launcher had travelled on the day to this location uh, which was appeared to be the launch site of the missile. We also then identified that this missile launcher in these videos and photographs was identical to a missile launcher that had been seen in Russia a few weeks earlier and tracked that back to the brigade it came from, the 53rd Air Defence Brigade, using open sources. Um, We were then able to actually identify many members of the 53rd Air Defence Brigade because we basically explored their social network of soldiers, um, which was kind of based around the um, online presence of the 53rd Air Defence Brigade, including their own own kind of um, V-contactor page for the 53rd Brigade, which all the soldiers were following. Um, And then we were stuck. We kind of. So we kind of identified where it came from, where it was shot down from, you know, all pointed to Russia. Um, And then we started looking at these intercepted calls that had been published by the Joint Investigation Team, which is the official criminal investigation um, and the SBU, the Ukrainian intelligence services of um, Russian separatists, uh, Russian-backed separatists discussing uh, events related to MH17 and identifying who these people were uh, and it turned out that some of these people were actually quite senior in the Russian military we one guy was you know one of the top people in the um, FSB for example um, so over time we've kind of established all this and um, because there's been this official criminal investigation that has you know once every couple of years giving a press conference to say where they're at with their investigation every time they've done that it's basically been. You know, just reflecting exactly what we've um, been writing about at Bellingcat um, for the previous two years um, so that kind of really raised our profile particularly in the Netherlands of course mm. because so many of the victims came from that country but also in Ukraine and also um, in,
0: in a more negative way in Russia Yeah I would imagine some of the, the details of that story are quite extraordinary and I will link to the the podcast that bellingcat did which is excellent and a number of other stuff like the lecture that you gave at sowa Syria society and the documentary truth in a post-truth world which is also the the title of this episode i just stole it um there are some some of the details as i said like aquatic so like i remember reading uh watching actually and, and i think it was in a documentary it was mentioned or in one of the lectures that you gave i don't remember but like some of the information that led you to to these soldiers or to confirm these soldiers uh, um Uh, like to confirm their identities was basically like the groups of mothers of these soldiers uh, posting on I think Facebook or on their websites and that kind of like so it was really everyday stuff that ordinary people can can do essentially like this is public information and so this kind of leads me to this question of like can you give us a sense of how uh, anyone really including people listening to this can take part in these kinds of investigative journalism techniques?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's lots of ways to get involved. I mean, as an individual, you can go off and try and do some of the kind of more in-depth investigations, although um, we generally encourage people to start with something quite simple, you know, Mm -hmm. find a video that you're interested in, find out as much as you can about the video, geolocate it, try and figure out what time it was taken. Test your skills, try and develop them. Um, you know, basically do what I did, and you know, start a blog and write about these things. And it doesn't have to be really advanced or complicated investigations. It can be just geolocating a video. But what you're trying to do is, like I was doing when I was first kind of doing stuff, is put out really solid material that you know you, you're clear about what you know and what you don't know. Because sometimes you see people doing this work and they kind of just take these leaps of logic, and you want to avoid leaps of logic at all costs. Yeah. But also, um, you know, there's there's different kind of depths of involvement. One of our most successful campaigns is when we've supported the Europol Trace and Object Stop Child Abuse campaign, mm. um, where Europol was taking objects from child abuse imagery um, and asking people to identify them. They cut them out the image and say, hey, "Do you know what these objects are?" We saw they were doing this, and we thought, "Well, they've got quite a small social media following, and we've got quite a large following, and our following." Are probably going to be people who will be into this kind of thing so we started amplifying it and you know writing articles about it on the website um and because it was such a simple task that's what made it so good for kind of crowdsourcing the answer of it sharing it with our community Um, and that's been very successful i think there's been at least you know several children rescued and a couple of the suspects arrested and that's just through people looking at photographs i think when falls apart is when you have a situation like you had with the uh, Boston Marathon bombing and the Reddit community investigating that. Because there was a large group of people trying to do a very complex investigation and it developed this kind of groupthink that kind of made people go in the wrong direction. And I think really when you're doing those really intensive investigations, you need a much more smaller, tightly knit groups of people with kind of more experience. But, you know, it's kind of like a scale. If you go, you know, with a big audience and you can do the kind of more simpler stuff that can still have a really positive impact. And what we're trying to do at Ballincat is we're going to relaunch our website, um, hopefully in July. the coronavirus is causing some issues with that Um, and then eventually um, add to that a volunteer section to the website where we'll be able to kind of direct people into various investigations that they can kind of help out with doing things like geolocation so it'll give people a chance to contribute but also kind of learn skills in a kind of controlled environment
0: so the two examples you gave are are quite interesting so the one about Europe if I understand correctly is basically these were objects that belong to the children or associated to the children that were kidnapped and being trafficked
1: well what it was they they had abuse photographs and these were generally images that were kind of you know they could do nothing with them Uh, they they'd done what they could to figure out what they can and Mm. it was this was like the last chance so there are various objects in the background and sometimes even you know the background itself was something they'd be looking at It'd be like some outdoor scene um and they would ask uh members of the public if they could identify where they were so many of these were simply like this is a bottle of shampoo Can you, and it's like a blurry bottle of shampoo and people could identify it because even though it's a blurry bottle of shampoo there's really only so many designs it could possibly be mm. it could be a supermarket bag from sweden or um we, we did we have someone um Uh, who is really good at doing these investigations, Carlos. And we've actually just been nominated for... We're in the final for European Press Prize for this this year. Mm -hmm. But he's been doing really, really in-depth investigations into some of these photographs. And one set of photographs, he managed to link to a photo studio, I think in Ukraine or Russia, that was previously linked to a lot of child abuse. Um, But he's found stuff that is really just you would never imagine was possible i mean another uh, person who was involved with it there was a photograph taken from a rooftop atop somewhere in asia that literally could be anywhere in asia and he found the precise rooftop it was taking on and by looking at things like the um lack of sa- um, mobile phone towers for example and other changes we could also date it within a certain date range um so it, it's it's a real it's a really i think good example of how Uh, The law enforcement community can actually work with organizations like Bellingcat to have a positive impact on, um, you know, something they're investigating in such a serious case as child abuse.
0: And in the case of the Boston Marathon bombing, this was the case, as you mentioned, that people online were kind of using the wrong tools or kind of reinforcing each other's uh, perceptions. And they they ended up actually like misidentifying people, which led to quite a lot of uh, trouble.
1: Yeah, I believe one of the persons um, they identified had been missing and was found dead later. Oh. And that obviously was a huge, you know, that that was a really good example of exactly why... Um, kind of complex investigations done by a large group are a really bad idea because it does create you get all these biases within the group that they don't recognize and then that causes a lot of trouble when i mean when we're investigating um you know we run a lot of stuff throughout this kind of slack channel where there's like 30 of us and um usually if it's a really in-depth investigation only two or three people will be working on like the really core of the story but then you'll have various people you know helping with stuff like geolocation or you know stuff that you know is a bit broader within that investigation, um, but if you yeah, it, it's just very. I, I can't think of any good example where lots of people have been involved with a complex investigation and it's actually gone right. Mm.
0: You mentioned before, so I'll just say here that um, I I will try and do a number of episodes where I kind of have bring in the the Russian world in a sense and the Syrian world because those are two two areas of concern of mine, especially Syria, obviously, and. You, like you, you mentioned that you've been getting quite a lot of these negative attention as well like your work has your work in that of bellingcat obviously has attracted uh, the attention of trolls conspiracy theorists but like more importantly for for uh, my interest if you're not the interest party of the listeners like even government officials the russian government has become particularly obsessed with bellingcat but i also saw like the syrian government uh, personally name you and like mentioned you like how you live or your lifestyle or like the fact that you were raising a child on your own at the time or I don't know what what they said, mm. but it was mm. something like very very personal basically. But um, and yeah, I think it was like in some UN session or something. So like, sorry, if if it's okay for you to kind of tell listeners who don't know the extent to which the Russian government, especially and others, I guess, uh, have obsessed over banning cat, first of all.
1: Yeah, so um, it probably really started in early two thousand fifteen when we start really making our kind of big uh, making waves with the MH seventeen investigation, and it started off really more with the kind of Russian uh, media, you know, things like Sputnik and Russia Today Mm. being critical of Balinker and say, who is this Elliot Higgins and how dare he criticise Russia, that kind of stuff, and trying to make connections between me and you know, um, you know, the CIA and stuff like that, even Um, the usual stuff. Yeah, so there was that. And then um, over time, kind of Russian government officials started speaking about us. So, you know, the Russian foreign ministry spokesperson, she started uh, mentioning Bellingcat and saying we were using fakes. Um, In that incident, um, we actually emailed the Russian foreign ministry and asked them if they could provide evidence of Bellingcat using fakes. Because I kind of assumed at that time is they must have an actual reason for thinking that they can't just be saying that. And I was very naive at the time. and they, they basically sent me uh, a, this eight-page document in Russian that was um, four reasons why the images we were using were fake or you know, stuff like that. But um, we realized as we were reading through it, they basically just plagiarized it off a Russian live journal. Mm. Um, so we basically went back to them and said please don't plagiarise stuff in the future we also said all this stuff is actually wrong anyway um, and then they emailed me saying please don't contact us again in the future um, but that was really telling for me because it showed that they're basic, and, and this is a pattern I've actually seen in the past with Russia where they basically just take stuff off the internet so what you found with the August twenty first um, sarin attack in two thousand and thirteen is the Russian narrative was basically led by conspiracy theories on the internet. They had found, and some of them were qu- quite ridiculous, like saying the videos on YouTube were uploaded the day before, which is just a YouTube kind of dis- date display bug. Mm. Um, so you just have these, you, you have this kind of bizarre, bizarre feedback from the Russians, and it, a lot of it is pulling off internet conspiracy theories they've plagiarized, which is was bizarre to me. But then what started happening is um, we discovered. Um, And this was in 2018, I think, that in 2015 and fifteen and sixteen, myself and a few of my colleagues had received a lot of emails telling us we needed to change our Google password. And we just ignored them. We thought, oh, this is just some, you know, lame phishing attempt to steal our account probably from some scammer. And it turned out it was part of the same campaign that targeted thousands of of, um, people and resulted in the pedestrian emails being leased during the 2016 election, and that was run by Russian intelligence. Um, We also, um, late last year, uh, on uh, ProtonMail, had a very sophisticated phishing attempt against our accounts and a small number of accounts, uh, but I think we are dead by 20 or 30, linked to... um, uh, basically, people who are analysts of Russia or doing investigations into Russia, and that was also from what we can tell, um, you know, speaking to security experts that also came from Russia. Oh. Um, so there's been that. We've had more and more attacks on us from the Russian media, of course. Um, there's kind of you know online activity as well. There's loads of people who really hate Ball and cat because they think we're some part of some vast conspiracy. Um, and really what's happened there is kind of the Syria Trufer community and the MH17 Trufa community kind of merged once Syria was being popped by Russia. So um, that, that was um, kind of brought those people together. But there's there's just, um, you know, for us, there's you know, constant kind of criticism. I mean, we had the Russian ambassador to the UK claim after we did our Scripple investigations that we were part of the... Um, uh uk uh, british deep establishment uh working against russia and we are working for the security services um so and he, when he was asked what his evidence was he said oh we just have a feeling we don't have anything we can show you um so this is just it, it, it's kind of we get attacked a lot by them but they end up just making themselves look ridiculous most of the time and it just gives me you know good stories to tell on podcasts
0: <laughs> but has it ever like a uh extended to to like genuine security concerns like you you might, i mean skipper i guess is is a you know a different story but it is related i mean this happened on uk soil and uh i, I think if i'm not mistaken like uh russia today or sputnik or both i don't know how they function sometimes but they, they they send someone to kind of follow you around for a week and they he came to your door and that kind of stuff
1: so um so, so, yeah, basically what happened there is um, there was one day a few years ago where I, I got a message in the morning from this guy called uh, Nimrud Kama, uh or Khmer and he um, said he was coming down to Leicester to film something for Diwali. And he didn't mention who he was working for, and he said, um, would it be possible whilst I was in Leicester if I could film you? Now, Leicester is, Diwali a really big festival in uh, mm-hmm. Leicester, um, but I knew it wasn't for another three weeks, so I thought that's really odd. And then I realised that A week or two earlier, he had done a piece on the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights for Russia Today, where he basically went around the town trying to find the head of the Syrian Observatory of Human Rights, who, for legitimate reasons, you know, he has security concerns, doesn't want to be filmed by Russia Today. So I thought, right, this guy's straight away just lying to me about why he's coming, you know, why he wants to interview me. It's going to be for Russia Today. So I said, well, you know, if you want to talk to me, I'm going to be in London next week, so you can talk to me on Monday. Um, and then, um, I got a phone from my accountant's office and understand that I see my accountant twice a year so I can file my tax for my company, um, saying from the secretary saying he had just, this guy just turned up asking if he could speak to me like I was going to be there or if he, or the secretary knew who I was, which he had no reason to. Then I got a call from my office saying, um, someone was in the office building asking to speak to me. And then I got a call from, um, my mother saying someone had come and knocked on the door. Uh, for Russia today and she was quite upset about that and he basically just gone from place to place looking for me even though he knew I wasn't you know going to be any of these places mm. and of course he found some people on the speak to street to interview saying oh isn't it weird this person doesn't want to be found and they would go oh yeah yes mate it's very old um, and then they cut it into a piece saying why is Elliot Higgins hiding from uh, Russia today um and i also had another guy this is a crazy blogger called graham phillips who got a bit obsessed with me who also turned up my office and managed to talk his way in and annoy the staff there um the thing is i basically used my office as a postal address i usually just work from home so it wasn't like he'd find me there anyway Mm. um but yeah i mean there's that i mean i've also after the scribble stuff i had a visit from the um police um to have a long discussion about my security and just make me aware that i am being you know my, my address is kind of ta- you know flagged that if I, there's ever a call to my address there's a bit of an explanation to who i am or my background because i think if someone turns up and i explain it to them and they're a police officer they'll probably think i've gone mad mm-hmm. um like oh the russians are after me you've got to protect me they'll think i've gone insane mm-hmm. um so uh th- there's that and um you know, when we try, it's like as the staff as well. We're trying to spend more time looking at the security concerns as well, because as we come more high profile, obviously um, do more investigations, especially into these Russian spies. Um, there is a risk, I and mean, one thing we try to do is actually stay as high profile as possible, because it makes it we hope harder to target us, because there's more of a price to pay than if you know if I stub my toe, people think it's the Russians. Mm-hmm. So anything worse than that will cause some drama
0: um like sort of along the same lines you mentioned some of these people's online we we've both been at the receiving end of some of these same online pro asset groups although more recently i think they've uh gave up on me but i don't think they've given up on Cat. um like but m- much more recently like i think in the past few months or so they they have sort of been s- starting to turn against one another and it was a very weird phenomenon for me to witness uh for many of those like many of those accounts I've either blocked them or they've blocked me but I would see like other people on my timeline sort of comment on it and post screenshots and that kind of thing so whether I want to or not I was I was aware of it and it was as if they were trying to sort of like outdo one another in, in trying to prove which one was more ideologically committed or like who like it was kind of like a purity context context in some ways uh, the kind of demonstrating their loyalty to mm-hmm. the Assad regime or to the Russian government or to whatever it is can you talk a bit about like your impression of these circles and how they end up sort of reinforcing each other's uh, conspiracy theories and so on?
1: Yeah, I, I think there's a, a few things that are kind of influence in this. I think one of it is how online communities, uh work. Um, what I, you can observe is what happens is if someone has fairly moderate views and they're part of a community and that, that community accepts those views, they stay with that community. Mm. If they believe something that's kind of more extreme, they're often forced out or they find another community to join that believes exactly what they believe. Mm. And um, once they find a kind of community they're kind of comfortable with, say that acid doesn't use chemical weapons... Um, that becomes almost like their not quite their family, but they they draw value as an individual from that community. So they want to demonstrate, you know, that they are. Uh, you know, a, a key member of that community, or they have value in that community because it bring you know increases their own self worth. So they start um, express doing kind of more and more what we would see as extreme, loud, noisy behavior. You attack people. You write long blog posts. You say this, you know, this things. You know, you record videos, and you you become a bit of a personality in that community, which kind of then. And because you've gone to the kind of extremes to get that recognition, the whole uh, values of this community shift towards that, and people who are uncomfortable with those values split and form their own communities. And this is true not just for Syria, for Russia, political stuff. It's true for, you know, Rick and Morty, for example. Mm. If you know this U.S. cartoon, Rick and Morty, they had this uh, promotional source that there's an it's mentioned in an episode, and McDonald's had this promotion. So the real kind of annoying Rick and Morty fans would turn up at McDonald's and like be literally screaming at the staff, filming it, and then sharing it with the rest of their community, and all the rest community would find it hilarious, um, and that would reinforce that negative behaviour. But you see that with all you know a whole range of different online communities. People you know the health community has people who think it's good to drink bleach mm-hmm. to cure autism. We have people who think the earth is flat. Um, And even within that community, there's splits about exactly how the Earth is flat. Mm. Um, What I think is happening, though, at the moment with the kind of Syria community, well, well, basically that community is a combination of um, people from the kind of um, Russia truth community and the Syria truth community who kind of came together over the, um, you know, Russia bombing Syria. And now a lot of them have got into um, COVID-related conspiracy theories. And that is actually where a lot of these um, splits are actually starting to form. And it's been quite, from my perspective, very funny to watch. Because um, it's really... These people have terrible opinions and, you know, they believe in conspiracy theories. But now they can't agree on which conspiracy theory is kind of, you know, an acceptable level of craziness. So you'll see... Yeah, so you're seeing, um, I, I was just seeing someone uh, mention today that Eva um, Bartlett, who was a very big anti-White Helmets person and, you know, was heavily promoted by um, the Russians, you know, they took her to the UN to do a little press conference. Um She's now very much, seems to be very much into COVID conspiracy theories. She was sharing the pandemic conspiracy vi- video. Mm. Um, Piers Robinson, who was running, uh, who who I like to call the Syria propaganda super friends, who, who's done a lot on chemical weapon attacks, he's also promoting these theories as well. And that seems to be causing a split between that community. And there's this kind of pro-Russian community who don't seem to be you know getting into that so much and they're arguing about it and um yeah it, it's it, i was actually thinking this morning this is something i should be looking into more because a i think it's funny and b i think it's an interesting dynamic that's actually happening uh, in, in the context of how online communities kind of work and you know um stick together and fall
0: apart it does reveal a lot it really, really does reveal a lot and um the really depressing part for me i mean i do find it very funny as well and sometimes like it's both funny and depressing at the same time but the depressing part is that how long it takes for them to sort of each each eat, each other eat each other alive mm-hmm. Sorry. and but like some like what this kind of attention like the russian government these trolls conspiracy theories all of those stuff like they the sort of things that they always imply or i mean in a not very subtle way sometimes they just say it very directly is that bellingcat only investigates Uh, crimes of governments that are hostile to the West like they are anti-Western which like conveniently ignores obviously the crimes committed by Western governments and their allies that Bellingcat also regularly investigates I mean the Mm. the the U.S. bombing of a mosque in Aleppo I think was one example and there was there's a number of ones in Yemen can you talk a bit about these cases as well
1: yeah so um i mean yeah we do get loads of people saying well you're only right about russia which is very annoying to our staff members who never write about russia until on other topics and yeah. um i mean it, we do i mean we, we did an investigation into the bombing of Al a mosque um, in syria where mm-hmm. um the u.s had bombed uh, a mosque basically and initially it was claimed it was uh, russian or syrian forces in like the initial minutes but then it there was like a hellfire missile remains recovered and we worked with human rights watch and forensic architecture to basically take videos and photographs of the debris of the mosque and try and prove that the building that was destroyed because it was basically half the building was completely obliterated in this airstrike prove that half of the building was actually connected to the main prayer hall of this building which was still intact and by piecing together using 3d models photographs you're carefully examining these images we were able to prove that this was one building and that the US had despite their denials bombed the mosque and they eventually you know admitted they did um, another project we've been doing uh, basically we get a lot of interest from just the justice and accountability community about using our work mm. and because we were set up by basically just myself on my own and a, vol- a bunch of volunteers eventually um, now we're a large organization with 19 employees we're able to actually say okay let's create a process that where we can actually systematically investigate these events and archive this material in a way that can be useful that for courts that means we can rather than doing what we have to do with MH17 at the moment which is basically go back and rewrite everything so it can be given to court proceedings we actually can say okay as we do the investigation, we're doing it to a standard where we can just basically hand over the kind of case file to anyone who wants to use it and mm. make those kind of case files public. So we've done a few dozen investigations into airstrikes in Yemen by um, the Saudi coalition forces, and that's been used um, it by in the UK for challenges uh, against arms export agreements to Saudi Arabia because it shows that the Saudis are definitely targeting um, you know civilians and civilian infrastructure, um, and there's a very high likelihood that british bombs would be part of this and the, you know the uk also supports the saudis in other ways as well to allow them to do these bombing operations um so and then that was a took a huge amount of resources and almost nearly killed Cat because it was so hard to get it set up and it was like really complex but we we did it and now it's you know a big fundraising priority for us is to raise money to continue to do this because it's not so much about um yemen but about building these tools and processes and methodologies for archiving investigations so it can then be used in courts in the future
0: you mentioned the 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 child trafficking story are there other examples of how open source investigation techniques can be used in situations that are not uh, so-called conflict zones i'm asking this because uh i have had discussions with a number of people who uh kind of have this impression that this is only useful in situations where you have like bombings and, and uh, very dramatic events like that kind of thing whereas like investigation techniques can be used in, in open source investigation te- techniques can be used in other places as well.
1: Yeah um it, it can be used in a very wider um, you know range of topics I mean there is a focus on conflict and um it's very useful for investigating conflict events but Anything which needs kind of verifying and fact-checking, you can use these techniques. I mean, we've been doing a lot on um, kind of environmental damage as a a result of the conflict in Syria using kind of remote sensing, using satellite images. Mm. Um, and combining that with information from the ground, and these aren't directly related to incidents, but it shows a pattern of behaviour. For example, how ISIS basically created a massive um, need for oil refining, but using very very crude, polluting methods um, that roped in basically the civilian population to produce these very makeshift oil refineries. Um, we discovered as part of that as well that um, the uh, a human uh, a refugee camp had been built on top of one of these sites with all this crude oil just slightly below the surface. Um, And they didn't realise they'd done this because all these, they're basically just trenches filled with crude oil that were covered up. They were looking for a site for a refugee camp. They built it there, not realising what was just under the surface. And then a year or so later, the camp flooded and it brought all the basically crude oil up to the surface where there were kind of children playing in it and stuff like that um and that's be and by teaching organizations who are kind of responsible for this that there are ways to kind of use satellite imagery to just check what this place actually looked like before you stick a camp there Mm. it's a small thing but it's actually really has a lot of impact on the health of those people who are going to be in that camp you know those people are going to get sick because they didn't realize that this thing existed but it's possible to check that kind of stuff i mean there's a whole range of issues you can look at using this stuff it's just that i think because um you know the most high profile stuff in the news is conflict that tends to get the most attention.
0: There was this example of um, someone like a family was supposed to be rescued in the, I think it was in the British Virgin Isles or something like that. And there was a hurricane or something along those lines.
1: Yeah, so what happened there is um, a BBC journalist shared, a, it was someone we had trained in the past, but he shared a video. It's a very short uh, clip, uh, you know, probably 10 seconds long. And it basically just showed um, some trees and a view out over um, the sea with some islands in the distance. And he said a family had gone missing in the British Virgin Islands. They hadn't been in contact with their family in the UK for a few days. They'd just moved there and they didn't actually know the new address of the family. So by using what was visible in that photograph uh, of that video, first of all, uh, using crowdsourcing, I said, can anyone figure out you know where these islands are? We know they're in the British Virgin Islands. So people went around the edge of the British, Ver- you know, the islands of the British Virgin Islands, looking out to see on Google using 3D terrain, where you can actually see the shape of these islands that were in the distance and found a possible location. Um, then in this video, you can see basically very briefly just this, um, wooden handrail and the top, the edge of this roof. And those are like the only clues to which houses and I was thinking, where can I find photographs of people's houses? Well, I thought, well, I'll look on Airbnb and estate agents' websites. And all the houses in this area were kind of unique, you, you know, designs. And I managed to find a house that had the same handrail railing and the same kind of roof structure. Mm-hmm. And, then I rea- and it didn't look like the same house. The view was wrong. And then I realised the house next door on satellite imagery had exactly the same layout. And it was the only two houses like that in the entire area. So we called the estate agent who was selling the first house. Who had also just sold this other house I was looking at to a UK company. Uh, couple and their kids who had been evacuated a few days earlier, and it was the missing family. Um, But yeah, it can be used to track down missing people. We've done that in the past, you know, look at the, another project we did in one of our workshops was looking at um, the living conditions of um, uh, migrant workers in the Netherlands because there was a lot of talk about them being putting really terrible accommodation and you know being stuck there. And they would share stuff on social media about their living conditions and no one was really bothering to look at it until outside of their own community until we kind of looked into it and it started telling us more about how these things work and you know the, the you know, what these living conditions were like. So there's a whole
0: range of ways you can use these kind of techniques. And some of these techniques I mean there these are available on on Bellingcat's website I think and there are like uh, ways of actually learning them isn't there
1: yeah, so, um, I mean, we, we have various guides and case studies on the website and other organisations like First Draft, for example, they provide case studies. Um, one thing we're going to do, along with the volunteer section that we're launching, is also create a section for tools. We have a very popular Google document at the moment that lists basically every open source investigation tool we can think of. Mm. But um, there, what we're going to do is actually um, have all the tools on the website and then link all the tools to any article that we've written that includes it. So... If you read an article and think, oh, hey, I could try and do that, there'll be a link to like the tool page, which will explain how the tools used, where you can download it from if you need to download it or the website you need to visit, okay. but also linking to other examples on Bellingcat where we've used that same tool, so you can kind of get an idea of how to use it yourself. So we're trying to make the kind of um,
0: volunteering and educational kind of side of it kind of really integrated with each other. On the... Um on the issue of archiving it's something that's obviously very important and i know that bellingcat has worked with uh, groups like cn archive and you know other websites like that and uh can you talk a bit about like the importance so just a quick quick context the archiving in the case of the lebanese context is something that uh, a bunch of us are quite worried about because they tend to be like kind of spread out on several websites on small blogs on facebook groups and you know that kind of thing and they tend to be very uh, ephemeral like we don't actually know if if uh, if something, if there is some kind of court case at some point in the near future whether these people would be able to actually access the same kind of information. So can you talk a bit about how archiving is done or how it could be done and how the YouTube case uh, when YouTube removed a bunch of videos from say I think it was related to seeing opposition uh, channels like how, how, how that was a good example of the importance of archiving.
1: Yes, so um, I mean, for us, it's been a really big part of our work as we've been going forward because with Syria, as you said, we had an incident back in um, two thousand and I think fifteen or sixteen, where um, Google started using an algorithm to detect videos that they thought were basically, um, you know, could could uh, violate standards. You know, there was, it was after ISIS had put, used YouTube to post a bunch of videos, and they'd been cracking down on that. But it resulted in lots of Syrian opposition pages, uh, YouTube channels being taken down. And often, um, you know, we, we heard about this and working with a group called the Syrian Archive, we started asking YouTube what was going on. Um, and it turned out a lot of these were just false positives because it's very hard to, when you've got like 90,000 videos on a YouTube channel going back for six years, if you get free videos that look like, you know, according to an algorithm, they might be a bit, you know, jihadist. Um, and then some... You know person who's got five seconds to check if it's true or not looks at it and decides it is you're going to lose a lot of channels and literally we helped get hundreds of thousands of videos restored because of that so archiving stuff off youtube and other platforms became a big priority for us so now we've been working with the syrian archive to start archiving this material and basically making sure um, it's accessible somewhere else that it can be secure and also as we're archiving it doing it to a standard where you know it can be hashed it can be shown that the video file hasn't been changed since the archived copy was made mm-hmm. um, one thing we'd really like to do moving forwards is as we've developed we're developing this process i mentioned earlier with yemen is um once we kind of package it up to, and share it with other organizations is start basically allowing people to have their own archives of material and then basically an indexing system that allows them to share stuff that's on that archive with a kind of centralised index so they have full control over what's shared, how much information is shared but it makes it accessible to groups who might need to use it for other reasons uh, reasons like research purposes, or you know, like the uh, ICC or IIIM on Syria needing it for, for evidence, and they no- can use it knowing uh, that it's kind of been archived in a very particular way. Because otherwise, you end up with a situation when you know these bodies ask different organizations for stuff. They've got to send out like 40 different requests written in forty different ways to 40 different organizations and get 40 different responses. And what I think we need is a system, and this is what we're working towards, where you can basically highlight a part of the country you're interested in saying, I want everything that was kind of geotagged, you know, or everything linked to this location on this certain date range that are held in multiple archives and immediately gives you a kind of result set. And you can just say, okay, I now want these videos. And you send a request to everyone with a click of a button and they can respond automatically or they can choose what's sent back and stuff like that. So everyone has still full control over the material they've archived. And this could be open source material or material they've collected as part of their work, but it makes it as accessible as possible to those kind of end users who are you know, gonna make, take it and actually turn it into something else.
0: Mm. And like on a final note, um, what, what's on the horizon for Bellingcat? Like, What can we expect in the next year to, uh, whether on Bellingcat's website itself or like uh, on some of these intersections that we mentioned when it comes to like, uh, justice and accountability or, or journalism and that kind of thing?
1: Well, we've been doing a lot of work to um, professionalise over the last 18 months. I mean, we've, since we did our big script reporting in uh, 2018, we've gone from having say about um you know five or six members of staff to having i think we're on 18 members of staff we have uh we're fully registered charity now in the netherlands so we get fun things like audits we've just spent five months doing an audit our first big one which was really fun uh and then um so we have a business team because before it was like literally me doing everything all the admin work all the bank recs all the invoicing you know everything um so now i actually have a team doing that so um we're, we're now have like a really stable kind of basis for growing as an organisation. So um, one thing we're focusing on a lot is raising money for this Yemen project that I've been talking about. Um, we're discussing some ideas about how, with other organisations about having a kind of research and investigation hub based in uh, a country somewhere, um, which could be quite interesting. Um, we're focusing a lot now actually on producing different kinds of media from what we've been doing. So we've, last year we had the MHM team podcast. Season 2 of that is coming out um, when we relaunch the website in July. We're also going to be crowdfunding for Season 3, which is going to be based off uh, Russian um, investig- the Russian spy investigations we've done. Um, so um, we're also working as well to start trying to produce um, TV documentaries or film documentaries we're actually um, working at the moment as setting up a uh, uh, production company and we're hoping soon that we'll be able to start um, producing our first actual documentary feature um, that we're hoping will be um, broadcast quite widely on television internationally so uh, we're trying to kind of really take ourselves to the next level at the moment that's awesome
0: Elliot really thank you
1: for your time there's no problem thanks for your time